Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another Revelation devotional. I am Pastor Jason Van Bemmel from Forest Hill Presbyterian Church. It's good to be with you on this Friday morning. We have Grogu, our Friday Grogu, and uh, a filled with very good coffee. And we are ready to unpack another challenging chapter in this wonderful uh, and helpful and inspiring and challenging book of Revelation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this book in your word. Thank you for the truth it has for us. Thank you, Father, for showing us your truth through your son, Jesus Christ, who is revealed for us in this book, for us to be his faithful witnesses and those who stand for him and with him in this dark world of tribulation. Write your word on our hearts this morning, Father, and strengthen our courage to be a witness for Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Revelation chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone harms them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood, and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, 
For you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the Ark of his Covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Ah, the two witnesses. This is one of the most challenging and most debated passages in the book of Revelation. So I want to lay some groundwork here to help guide our interpretation. First of all, we are dealing with apocalyptic literature which means that what we see here are symbols and visions. This is not a literal accounting of either past history or of future history. And so two of the more popular ways of looking at these two witnesses, one focuses the book of Revelation around the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And that's called the preterist approach. And They basically see these two witnesses as two historical figures, witnesses, who rose up and who testified with uh, great authority leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The problem with that account is that there's nothing in the historical record that would indicate any two such witnesses, um, so it's problematic. But another is that this is future. That in the future, you know, in the days of the Great Tribulation, in the days of the, you know, the final years before Jesus' return, according to a a system of thought called dispensationalism or an approach to revelation called futurism, that, that this will be something that is yet future and that these are two literal witnesses who will come and do this. Both of those do not approach this passage symbolically, which I think is the right way to approach what's happening in Revelation. And they also rob most of the church of the encouragement, comfort, and direction that Revelation is intended to give. Revelation is given to the church. The church in John's day, the church in our day, and the church in all the days in between for our encouragement, for our direction, for our comfort, for our hope, uh, for our mission in the world. And so I will side with those who say that this symbol of these two witnesses is the witness of the church and that we begin with the temple of God. And in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 2, in the New Testament, the temple is the church. Sometimes the temple is the body of the individual Christian because the Holy Spirit lives within us, But more commonly, when Jesus said, I will build my church to Peter in Matthew 18, uh, we see in Ephesians 2 and in 1 Corinthians 3 and in 1 Peter 2 that the building of a new and living temple is the church. It's a picture of the church. And in Revelation chapter 21, when we get to the new Jerusalem, the holy city, which descends out of heaven as a bride prepared for her bridegroom, this also will be a picture of the church, the bride of Christ. So the temple of God is 
the church. Now, there's a difference between the temple around the altar, which is measured, and the outer court, or as the ESV translates it, the court outside the temple, which is left out of the measuring. When God measures something or counts something, he is keeping it. He is, he is preserving it. And so there is a difference between the true church of God, which is represented by the temple of God, and the altar, which is where Christ was sacrificed. And we saw in Revelation 6, the martyrs under the altar crying out to God. So the true church of God, which is those who are elect, those who are redeemed, those who trust in Christ, they are measured. They are kept. But the outer court, the outside of the temple, which um, many Bible scholars, most, I think, reliable Bible scholars say this has to do with the visible church in the world, the organizational church, the nominal church, the, the church that we see in the world. So denominations and organizations of the church. They are not promised to be kept. So some people misinterpret Christ's promise when he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They think, oh, well, the Presbyterian Church in America or the Southern Baptist Church or the Episcopal Church USA or the Evangelical Lutheran Church or they're going to stay forever. No, those are human organizations which, if they are not faithful to Christ, Christ will remove their lampstand and they will be gone. We saw that in the letters to the churches. Another principle for approaching Revelation is to never leave behind the vision of Christ from chapter 1 or the letters to the churches from chapters 2 and 3 when you're going through the rest of the book. So this is the church. And in the church, we have two witnesses. And they witness for, there's a period of time here, 42 months in verse 2, 1260 days in verse 3, which if you do the math, it's the same period of time. It's three and a half years. And it's three and a half years, we'll talk about this more as we go on, it's three and a half years that corresponds to the final three and a half years of Daniel's 70 weeks vision that he's given in Daniel chapter 10, also to three and a half years that's referred to in Daniel chapter 7. It is a limited period of time. It is a symbolic period of time. And in Revelation, as I think also in Daniel, it is re referring to the church age. And what do I mean by that? I mean the time between Pentecost outpouring of the Spirit and the return of Christ. There are two witnesses that prophesy dressed in sackcloth. And this is, this is symbolic of the witness of the church. We get some of this symbolic witness when we look at uh, where this image comes from in the Old Testament. Zechariah 4, if you're looking at verse 4 here, Zechariah 4 is the background to that. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. In Zechariah 4, there are two anointed ones. And they are most likely, specifically at that time in history, the governor Zerubbabel, who's functioning as a king, he's in the line of David, and the priest, Joshua, who is administering over uh, the temple, rebuilding and worship. And it's in, it's in the book of prophecy of Zechariah. So you see an interplay here, if you go to Zechariah 4, of 
prophet, priest, and king. These are referred to as prophets, and yet they are identified symbolically with the two anointed ones from Zechariah 4 who are a priest and a king. So I think this is the witness of the church in the world as prophet, priest, and king. And then two particular witnesses, prophets from history, are brought out and highlighted. And the first is Elijah, and then is Moses. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes them. They have power to shut up the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. That's all Elijah language. But then they have power over the waters to turn them into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague. That's Moses language. Now, where do we see Moses and Elijah together? On the Mount of Transfiguration. And what are they doing on the Mount of Transfiguration? They are witnessing to Christ. They are bearing witness as testimony to Christ. Why two witnesses? Because in God's standard, it takes two witnesses to establish the truth of something. So these two witnesses symbolically represent the witness of the church throughout the church age, which is both faithful and impossible to extinguish, but which also suffers opposition in the world. Now, what's interesting is we're told that during the three and a half years, during the 42 months, during the 1260 days, no one can harm them. But then at the end of that time, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, this is the first time we're introduced to this beast in Revelation. He's going to come up again in chapter 13 and chapter 17. He's the opposite of the lamb who comes from heaven. There's a lamb who comes from heaven, and there's a beast that comes from the bottomless pit. He is a supernatural figure, and he empowers evil in the world, and he opposes the church. Now, this particular verses, does this refer to a time close to the second coming of Christ when the church has finished their testimony in the world, the gospel has reached all the nations, and the church will be severely persecuted to the point of being extinguished, dead, killed. Maybe, maybe. Um, I actually do lean toward that interpretation a little bit myself, but it could also just refer to the fact that within each culture, at each time and stage, the church has a witness, and when the witness comes to an end, the church is set aside. And this helps us to understand why it is that we have post-Christian cultures and post-Christian nations, because the church had their witness, and the people were brought in, and then the church was faithless to Christ on one hand, and faced severe opposition on the other hand, and now it seems as if they practically are no more. Whichever way it is, what we're supposed to get from this is that the witness of the church is protected by God for his purposes. The persecution of the church is limited. Now, when the church seems to be no more, the world rejoices. The world is celebratory. When the witness of the church seems to be extinguished and the church seems to be no more. But the church is cared for. And the church is even brought to life again and brought up into heaven. So at the, at the very end, if, if, this, if these verses are referring to a severe persecution coming at the very end of time for the church, then 
the church will be literally resurrected as Jesus comes again. And it could be. Because at that hour, there's a great earthquake and there's judgment. But it could also just be that whenever, whenever the world thinks they've gotten rid of the church, the church rises again and there's often judgment associated. So there's a little bit of uncertainty here. We don't want to try to be more certain uh, about things than we should be. But one thing we shouldn't be doing with Revelation is we shouldn't be looking at these verses and then looking at news headlines or looking at things on the internet and trying to find a correspondence. Who are those two witnesses and when are they going to come? That's not why Revelation was given to us. Those are the secret things of the Lord. The things revealed are given to us. We are the witnesses. And we are supposed to be bold and faithful even though we face severe opposition. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the seventh trumpet. I think it's very straightforward and very beautiful. And that is that at the end of the church age, when the church has finished her witness, when the times are fulfilled, the seventh angel blows his trumpet. This is the last trumpet. And at the last trumpet, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That doesn't happen before the last trumpet. We remain under persecution and we remain faithful to Christ by his grace. That is the call until the last trumpet sounds. And with this last trumpet, the time for the dead to be judged has come. This is so clearly the end, the last day, the final judgment, the end. And this is at least the third time, if not the fourth time, that we've reached the end, maybe even the fifth time. It's hard to keep track of these things carefully, but you get, I believe, at the end of Revelation chapter 5, the scene in heaven, we come up to the end. I believe that at the end of chapter 6, we come up to the end. I believe that in chapter 7, with the, with the sealing and the saving and the gathering in of, the, of the saints, we come to the end. And then here we come to the end again. So this is the fourth time that we've come to the end. And it's this recapitulation of the story from a different perspective. And here in chapter 7, we saw the sealing and saving of the saints. But here we see the witness and martyrdom of the church. What's our takeaway? It's very simple. It's not easy, but it's very simple. And that is, the world ain't never going to like us. So stop thinking that it will. But Christ will never fail us. So stop doubting. Be a bold witness for Christ. A faithful witness for Christ. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth with clarity. And expect rejection. Because the kingdoms of this world will not become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ until Jesus returns again at the last trumpet. At the end of all time. But that day is coming, brothers and sisters. That day is coming. And until then, we can know that if we're measured by God, we are kept by God. Our witness will be made effective for God's purposes and the church, the true church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, will never fail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us courage to be bold and faithful witnesses like Moses and Elijah. May we stand for Christ even when we are opposed. Moses was opposed by all the powers of Egypt. Elijah was opposed by all the powers of Israel. 
whether it is the powers of the world or the powers of your people, so-called people who are opposing us. Make us bold and faithful in our witness for Christ and for his glory and for his kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining me today for Revelation chapter 11. We will keep marching on. Revelation chapter 12 is one of my absolute favorite chapters in Revelation. It's a great story of a woman with a crown of 12 stars who gives birth to a child and is pursued by a dragon from heaven. It's a great, it's a great story and it's a, it's a great telling of the gospel. So be here on Monday morning for Revelation chapter 12. If you can, if you're looking for a place to worship in Hartford County, you can come out and join us on Sunday morning at 1030. We meet at the Newport Terrace Knights of Columbus building on Newport Drive in Forest Hill. You can find our address and directions on our website, foresthillpca.org, or on our Facebook page. If you, It's easier for you to find us there, facebook.com slash foresthillpca. We would love to have you come worship with us if you are in Harford County and you do not have a church home. If you have a church home, please go worship with your church, and we will see you back here on Monday morning. Have a blessed day in the Lord.